Our text this afternoon comes from Colossians chapter 1, the verses 12 to 14. We'll read from verse 9, beginning at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And here begins our text, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think of when you hear the word gospel? The word gospel is all over the Bible. It means good news. If you've spent time reading or studying the Bible on a regular basis, you probably know that the word gospel, especially in the New Testament, is a word that often doesn't stand all by itself. I'm sure it isn't too difficult to finish the phrase, the gospel of Fill in the blank. The gospel is good news about something. I did a quick survey through the New Testament to see how it finishes the phrase, the gospel of blank. And here's what I found. Of course, the most common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are other phrases similar to that one, such as the gospel of Christ or the gospel of his son. But there's others too. For example, the gospel of God, gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God's grace, the gospel of your salvation, and the gospel of peace. And each phrase in its own way captures a part of the multifaceted good news that God's word proclaims to us. That brings me to the title of this, this sermon, the gospel of God the Father. I realize that that may be a little bit surprising. You will never find this phrase anywhere in the New Testament, Usually we say the gospel of Jesus Christ, so perhaps the phrase the gospel of God the Father strikes us as a bit odd. But it's perfectly fitting to what Paul says in these verses from the first chapter of Colossians. In this letter, which in other places so highly exalts the supremacy of Christ, the Son, here Paul directs our thanksgiving to the Father. The gospel is just as much from the Father as it is from the Son. In these verses, Paul states three things with three clear verbs which the Father has done for us. And that will be our three points this afternoon. We'll see that the Father has qualified us for an inheritance, that the Father has rescued us from darkness, and third, that he has brought us to his Son. So first, we'll see that the Father has qualified us for an inheritance. We saw this morning that in the verses uh, 9 
to 14. On the whole, Paul is articulating his prayers, his petitions for the church at Colossae. The longer backstory behind this, however, is that a man named Epaphras, who's the Colossian pastor, we might say, he has traveled all the, way, all the way to Paul in Rome because the Christians in Colossae are being troubled by false teachers. The false teachers are advertising different practices that they say will fill up the, Christ, the Christian's experience. In light of that, we saw that Paul's prayer is that they simply continue, that they simply continue to grow in the knowledge of God's will in the plain gospel that they had received already from Epaphras. He wants them to live lives pleasing to God. And one of the characteristics of that sort of life is what Paul elaborates on in these verses. It's the sort of life that gives joyful thanks to God the Father for what he has done. Paul says that the Father has qualified you, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And Paul's use of the word qualified here is very intentional. If you were to skip ahead to chapter 2, 18, you'd see there that apparently the false teachers had been using the language of disqualification with regard to the Colossian believers. Paul tells the believers, he says, let no one disqualify you, assisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. And Paul continues... So it seems that the false teachers were trying to give the impression that the believers in some way were second-class citizens in God's kingdom. They had not actually received what had been promised to them. It was really others. It was really those who incorporated elements of paganism or of philosophy or of Judaism. Those people with their hyper-spiritual practices, those were the ones that were receiving what God had really really promised. And so it's in the context of this that Paul assures the believers that they've been qualified. We understand what it means to be qualified, don't we? We might speak about being qualified for a job, for example. We have met the requirements. We have the proper set of skills to do the job that's being asked of us. We have the proper qualifications We also sometimes speak about being qualified for a special offer or a special opportunity. For whatever reason, we meet the qualifications that someone is looking for. And Paul here uses the same concept in our text. Somehow, the Father has considered us adequate for something. Somehow, he has considered us sufficient. We have met a standard. We have met a qualification. Already here with this very word, we see evidence of the gospel. Of ourselves, we are so totally unworthy. Unworthy to receive anything of that sort. We would speak alongside the centurion who says to Jesus, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And yet here in a miraculous way, Paul tells us that we have been made worthy to come under the Father's roof. Now, the picture we get from our text about being qualified for an inheritance is very similar to something we see in the Old Testament, isn't it? I'm thinking here of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. God bringing his people out of slavery, leading them through the wilderness, bringing them to the promised land. 
And that land there, God divided all the territory between the 12 tribes and then by each clan, by each family. Israelites who had been born in the wilderness, who had been born to nothing, now received their own share. They received their own plot of land as an inheritance. And the quality of that land was not subpar either. It was not some unwanted bog or some bad lands. It was luscious. It was flowing with milk and honey, full of vineyards and orchards, which the Israelites did not have to plant. And it was all given to them freely. It was a small piece of paradise. And even as great as that was, that physical reality merely foreshadowed the spiritual reality, which is before us today too. An inheritance, as Paul says, with the saints in light. When Paul says that our inheritance is with the saints in light, I think this might be where our imaginations become a little bit stretched. And that might very well be the point after all. This inheritance is in a place that is so holy, so glorious, so pure, and so good. It's a place where God's presence and His glory are fully manifested to us. God Himself is light, as John writes. And in our inheritance, God will be our light. That's what Revelation 22 says for us. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. This contrast between light and darkness that we see throughout Scripture, which we see also in our text with with verse 13, the domain of darkness and an inheritance in light. This, This basic motif, it occurs throughout Scripture. It describes that difference between good and evil, between truth and and falsehood. Think of how Paul, for example, encourages us to walk as children of light. But the assumption throughout those, um, a passage like that, where Paul speaks of walking as a a child of light, the assumption always is that we are living in a world where both light and darkness exist. Where God's goodness and truth shine in our hearts and it's displayed through our actions, perhaps, But it's a world where Satan's lies and wickedness are seen too. But Paul says that our inheritance is not in a place like that. Our inheritance is in a place of pure light. A kingdom where light is the only reality. Have you ever imagined what it must have been like to be a person like Rahab? Or even Ruth? To experience such a radical transformation where one moment you are a nobody, you are a foreigner, and the next moment you are a part of God's people. Somehow by an act of God's grace, you have been qualified to receive an inheritance in the promised land. Imagine being Rahab. Rahab, the Israelites march around the city for seven days. Everyone in Jericho is qualified for what? Qualified for destruction. But as the walls fall all around you, somehow by some miracle, your own house in the wall is protected. The Israelites come into the city and they bring you back out with them. Why? You're not an Israelite. But somehow you've been qualified. 
God has deemed you sufficient to receive an inheritance in that promised land. How? It's only by grace. Brothers and sisters, the same thing has happened to you. The Father has qualified us. God the Father has made that decision. And He has not done so begrudgingly or because He is compelled to do so. Because of His Son. Notice here the order in which Paul describes things in our text. Notice the logic here. The Father qualifies us for an inheritance. So then the Father delivers us. So then we receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It seems to me that we often think about these things in the opposite order. That because we've been forgiven, that means the Son must deliver us. And because the Son has delivered us, the Father must qualify us. But that's not how the Father's love works. In fact, He has prepared an inheritance for us, and so He sends His Son to rescue us, who achieves the forgiveness of our sins on the cross. Do you see how the Father's love for us begins the whole process? I think that sometimes we're inclined to think that, the, that God the Father brings the bad news, but God the Son brings the good news. That the Father is terribly angry about our sins, but the Son satisfies Him. We think that God the Father is like King Saul, and God the Son is like King David, or David before he was king, rather. That as long as David is playing the harp, Saul is kept happy. But what if, but what happens when David leaves the room? And what would happen if Jesus left the room? Would the Father's mood suddenly change? Would he all of a sudden try to kill us without Jesus to defend us? Brothers and sisters, the answer is a firm no. The Father does not love us because he sent his Son. The Father sent his Son because he loves us. The reason we probably get this backwards so often is that we find it to be too good to be true, don't we? Are we really able to say, I'm qualified for heaven? I'm qualified for the kingdom of light. We feel so inferior, we think of our sins. Sin that still dwells in us with which we struggle every day of our lives or sins that we've committed in the past, which we think might tarnish our record or perhaps disqualify us altogether. Or perhaps we are a relatively new believer and we feel subpar compared to everyone else. We still seem like an outsider, someone who is really just intruding. Quite often, in these contexts, our natural reaction is to try to qualify ourselves, to try to improve our our Christian resume, we might say. But brothers and sisters, God the Father has already declared you fully qualified. Let this wash away any sense you may have of inferiority. Let's look at our second point, that that God the Father has rescued us from darkness. So it's because of our qualification, then, that the Father begins a rescue operation. That's what Paul writes about in verse 13. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now, we ought to notice that the word deliver is different than the word save. 
The word save emphasizes the final result. It emphasizes the fact that things have been made well. And while the word deliver can describe the very same activity, what it emphasizes is the danger. It emphasizes the danger that someone finds themselves in. And the best word in English to describe this is probably rescue. Rescue. The word rescue, both in Scripture and in everyday life, it emphasizes peril. One dictionary described it like this. It says, the implication is that the danger in question is severe. The danger in question is acute. Think of Peter, for example, who began walking on water, but who was walking on water, but began to sink. He cries out to Jesus to rescue him. That's the sense of this word here. Immediate peril, immediate danger. So what then is this terrible danger from which we have been saved? Paul describes it in our text as a domain of darkness. We've already mentioned that contrast between darkness and light. And Paul, again, is intentionally making a contrast with the light as we see it in verse 12. Darkness here represents the absence of God, the presence of sin, the powers of sin. Apart from the rescue of God the Father through the Son, this is the state in which we, found, we, in which we find ourselves. This is the reality in which we used to live. For example, in Ephesians 2, Paul makes this incredibly clear. He said, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. All of us also lived among them at one time. This passage from Ephesians also highlights the fact that spiritual beings are at work in the dominion of darkness. It includes beings like the devil and his demons, and we don't want to spend too much time on this aspect right now, but it's good to be aware that Paul's picture of a domain of darkness also includes very much the influence and power of spiritual beings. This aspect becomes important later on in Colossians. You can leave that aside for now. But uh, keep this in mind here, that Paul is emphasizing the fact that we've been rescued from the dominating power, the dominating power of the sinful realm. This brings us back again to something that we mentioned earlier, which is the Exodus. Living under this dominating power is often described, especially in the New Testament, as being a slave, as being a slave of sin. Just as the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptian authorities, so we too, before God rescued us, were slaves to sins. We were not free citizens. We simply did what our sinful passions wanted us to do. And so God's rescue operation is a liberation. An operation to set slaves free. You see that come back again in verse 14 too, where Paul says that in Christ we have redemption. Redemption refers directly to the setting of slaves or captives free. Generally, to do so, a price would have to be paid. When the Israelites were freed from Egypt, the price was the firstborn son of the Egyptians and the blood of the lamb for the Israelites. For us, the price of our redemption is Christ's blood. But what's even more wonderful about this phrase, the dominion of darkness, is that it actually occurs in another place 
in the Bible. And that place is in Luke chapter 22, verse 53. This is the very moment where Judas is betraying Jesus. Jesus is being handed over to the chief priests, being handed over to the temple guard, where he's going to be put on trial before the religious authorities, before Pontius Pilate. Ultimately, he is going to be crucified. And this is what he says to those who are arresting him. He says this, Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. If we translate this literally, it would be, this is your hour, the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness. You see, here we see in this moment, Jesus Christ entering into the very heart of the domain of darkness. All the spiritual and political authorities of this world are pressing up against him. They are hostile to him. They want to take him down. What is he doing? Why is he there? You see, Jesus enters the domain of darkness because he's on the Father's rescue mission. He enters the domain of darkness because that's where we were. The Father wanted us rescued. Picture this, a rescue operation. Jesus is the boots on the ground, but the Father is central command. As Jesus completes his task, as he frees us from danger, he is always communicating with his Father. Do you have that sense in your life that you have been rescued? That when you believed in Christ, whenever that was, perhaps you cannot even remember that that was God the Father's rescue mission. That he reached down by sending his son to die on the cross for your sins. That he pulled you out of the water where you had nowhere to go but down. You would have certainly drowned. You would have perished in your sins. You would have gone on serving sin and enjoying it more and more and throwing your life into more and more destruction. Finally, you would have reached judgment day and you would have cursed God. You would have said, I want nothing to do with the kingship of Christ. Put me back in the darkness. Get me away from the light. And you would weep and gnash your teeth forever and ever. You understand the serious danger that everyone in this room was in at one time. Or the serious danger that anyone is in who does not believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. I'm not trying to say that it's pleasant to think about these things. But it's against this backdrop that the amazing grace of God the Father shines so clearly. Maybe you look around at other Christians who have always been church members, who always seem to do things right. Maybe you think they would meet all the qualifications. But they've been saved from the same danger as you have been saved from, only by the grace of God. Or maybe you're a relatively new believer and you have the most unlikely story imaginable. The fact that you are here today, the fact that somehow you became a Christian is just the most unlikely thing in the world. But brothers and sisters, that's the surprising love of God the Father. Wherever you lived in the the domain of darkness, however deeply entrenched you were in it, the Father sent His Son in to rescue you. 
Let's look at the final element of our text, which is that the Father has brought us to his Son. The final reason for giving joyful thanks to the Father is that he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Paul says. He has transferred us. The word transfer is very dramatic. Other translations use terms like brought or even translated. The best term might even be transplanted. This word describes a radical uprooting of something and putting it down in an entirely different place. In another place, Paul uses the same word to describe the moving of mountains. So we don't get the sense here that Paul is talking about a meandering journey into the kingdom. Paul is speaking here about a radical, radical displacement. So then, where has God the Father placed us? In the kingdom of his beloved Son. Literally, the Greek says this. It says, the kingdom of the Son of his love. The kingdom of the Son of his love. That's a rather unique way of putting it. The Son of his love. And I think it's a subtle way of emphasizing for us, as we've already seen, emphasizing the Father's love, which motivates our salvation. The Son of the Father's love. We know that he has a great Trinitarian love for his Son. But this phrase also speaks of the Father's love for us. Since the giving up of his Son was an expression of his love for us. The Son is a gift of his love to us. The Son of his love. The coming of this Son into the world was a direct fulfillment of what we read from 2 Samuel 7. The Lord had promised David that one of his sons would rule after him, that his throne would be established forever. The Lord promised, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Ultimately, that son who would reign forever from whom the Father's love would never depart, was the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ. And it's into the reign of that Lord Jesus Christ that we've been brought. God's love can never be taken away from our King, Jesus Christ. They are two persons of the one Trinity. They share a Trinitarian love. And so living in the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son means that we're living under the umbrella of that Trinitarian love. I'm sure that many of you in your own marriages or in your own families have seen how a strong love that is shared between parents can impact the character of the entire home. When dad and mom love each other and when they show that love to one another, it sets the tone for everyone else in the household too. The house becomes a warm and uninviting place. Kindness and joy become the norms of life. Conflicts are resolved in a gentle and a loving way. A spirit of love pervades the home. To some degree, that's what it's like living in the kingdom of the son he loves. The love of father for son sets the tone and character of the entire kingdom. We experience freedom. We experience fellowship. 
Through the Holy Spirit, God's love pours into our hearts. This is what we have been brought into. However lonely or depressed you might be, in whatever corner you might hide, you are under this umbrella. Your entire reality has a different flavor than even your next door neighbor or even your own non-believing family members. Let me ask you, do you recognize the once-for-all decisive change that has taken place in your life? Do you know the gospel of God the Father? Do you have a sense of having been rescued? Does that make you thankful? with the sort of thanksgiving that Paul gives? How does that impact your prayers? Do your prayers have a sense of personal gratitude to God? Do you know God's work of salvation not only to be true, but also to be true for you? In many ways, our prayers ought to have the tone of a thank you letter. I want to read you a portion of a very moving thank you letter. It's addressed to a man named Nicholas Winton. He was a British man who saved 669 Jewish children from Czechoslovakia. He brought them to England shortly before World War II. For many years, he had kept his identity hidden. Once his identity had been made known in 1988, um, one of the women who had been saved as a young girl wrote a letter to him. And this is how it goes. She says, how does one write to, how does one thank someone who has saved one's life? Thank you, thank you with all my heart for being that courageous young man years ago who arranged the transportation of Czech children to England. Had you not done so, I would not have lived in and loved England for 18 years. I would not be here in the Antipodes appreciating the beauty of the countryside, the song of the birds, the sun on my face, the wind in my hair. My children would not have been born. My life would have ended in a concentration camp, as was the fate of my parents and most of my family. Because you live and have dared, so many of us are alive today. And no words can express the gratefulness I feel in my heart. To this day, I did not know to whom to say thank you for my life. Isn't that a wonderful illustration of how we ought to pray to God? Father has qualified us, he has rescued us, brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And it transforms the way that we look at the world. We're not in darkness anymore. Like this woman writes, now we appreciate the beauty of life. The blessings that God gives us. We would have ended very differently without him. And so brothers and sisters, let's cultivate this sense of gratitude every day of our lives. Amen. Let's sing together now from hymn 19. We'll sing stanzas one and two of hymn 19. <laughs>